two weeks ago, Keith Pickard thought he was concluding our series on the solas. And last week, Keith McFarland thought that he was concluding our series on the solas. Today, I, my name's not Keith, by the way, uh, I think that I am concluding our series on the solas, uh, or more, more specifically, our mini-series through what we mean at Risen King Church when we would describe ourselves as Reformed. Uh, kind of the series kind of expanded beyond just five solas in five weeks uh, to a few more things than that. You know, claiming to be Reformed uh, distinguishes us truly from two main groups inside of Christendom. First, we are distinct from the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, this was the initial concern of the first Reformers in the 1600s. Uh, and second, and perhaps more relevant to us, we claim to be Reformed. We are seeing ourselves as distinct from what can be called Arminian doctrine, uh, which is very common, very popular, almost seems to be the default position of many churches, either partially or completely, whether that's uh, free will Baptists or Wesleyans, Methodists, Pentecostals, uh, many uh, would lean just kind of by default toward some aspect of that position rather than uh, what we would describe as the, the reformed understanding of scripture. And as I said at the outset of our series, uh, almost two months ago, the five solas are not unique to those who would claim to be reformed. In fact, these five ideas, they're behind me. Uh, these five ideas are so foundational that I don't understand what someone means when they speak of biblical Christianity if they would disagree with these five things, these five statements. I'll remind you of what they are. Sola Scriptura, Latin for scripture alone. And we talked about that, tried to make the point that it's scripture alone is our ultimate authority. Sola Gratia, grace alone is God's motivation for saving us. God's righteousness plus our sinfulness would equal our judgment, but God's grace steps in and therefore we are saved. Sola fide, faith alone is, is the means, the instrument of, of our salvation, the only way that it is accessed. Solus Christus, Christ alone is our mediator and savior. We need no other, other human, living or dead, uh, to represent us, give us access to God. It's Christ alone. And in soli deo gloria, the glory of God alone is the ultimate purpose for all things. I'm confident that all true Christians would agree with these five solas. Yet even as we would all believe them, all confess them to be true, we definitely understand how they are worked out in scripture differently. It's just if I would ask somebody, do you, salvation by grace alone? Yes, absolutely. I totally agree with that. And then explain as I did back in August. Right, so that means that if our understanding of biblically of our sinfulness, total depravity would require God's grace in election, grace alone. would be like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Don't agree with that. As we walked through these five solas, we wove in another group of five doctrines. Everything should be done in fives. Sometimes these things are called the doctrines of grace or the five points of Calvinism. And that last one is a bit of a misnomer historically to name it after John Calvin. It's a very popular way of referring to these doctrines, so we use it. It's not wrong. Uh, it's just, again, we could talk about that another time, like in person, not from the pulpit. And the doctrines of grace are the five points of Calvinism summarized with the acronym 
TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. T for total depravity, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I, irresistible grace, P, perseverance of the saints. And this is, the, this is that final point, perseverance of the saints, the final point of the doctrines of grace, and it's profoundly and practically important for us to understand. The other four, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, the other four we often look back on in wonder and in praise, saying something like, so that's how God saved me. That's amazing, right? We look back and be like, oh, that's how it worked. I see that in scripture. God is gracious in this. And the difference between those four points and this fifth point of perseverance of the saints, the difference between those is that it involves perseverance of the saints. It involves the entirety of your life as a Christian from your conversion to your death or to Christ's return, to the end of your life on this earth as we know it. It's incredibly important for you to understand this doctrine right now. I mean, right now, like during the sermon is why I'm talking about it. And like many of the other things we've dis discussed in this mini-series, the reformed position on perseverance or other things, assurances we'll get to, the reformed position is distinct from both Roman Catholicism and Arminianism in really all of its varieties. Light, Arminianism light to Arminianism full on, right? Those who would actually say, yes, I am a five-point Arminian. Distinct from Roman Catholicism, at the Council of Trent in the 16th century, which was really the Roman Catholic Church's response to the reformers such as Luther and Calvin, uh, they had their own meeting of, of priests, bishops, cardinals to come together and, and made a number of uh, definitive statements as to what the Roman Catholic Church, uh, they would not need to distinguish themselves in their minds, it would just be the church, uh, what the church says about different things it was at, at the Council of Trent where they absolutely said justification is not by faith alone, um, which they've never rescinded and have actually doubled down on um, in the last 50 years or so. But at the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church officially denied that it is possible for a person to have assurance of salvation except in rare circumstances. You cannot know, just as an ordinary Christian, you can't know that you have assurance of your salvation, except in rare circumstances. As in like God speaking to you directly, like a, a specific, uh, substantial revelation from God to you. The importance of this uncertainty is that it keeps believers in line. The thinking is that if you are assured of, if you are certain about your salvation, that you will live a lazy spiritual life in disobedience to God. But living in constant uncertainty about your spiritual state before God, living in constant fear of his wrath is the only way for people to be motivated to live Christ-honoring lives of obedience. So if you think, if you, if you feel the hammer over your head constantly, because really, if you recall, we say justification is a declaration as soon as you trust in Christ, right? The decision has been made. They say the decision is forthcoming, right? The verdict is not yet in, so you better work for it. 
And so hopefully we see the difference of that. Interestingly enough, this is remarkably similar to the Arminian position, which states that just as each human has the unconstrained freedom of will to choose to believe or trust Christ, so they also have the unconstrained freedom of will to choose to stop believing or trusting in Christ. Assurance is not possible because salvation is not certain. Just because you believe today doesn't mean that you will believe tomorrow. So live in fear of you falling away and stay in line because there's no motivation for obedience if it's not fear of judgment. You see the similarity between those two positions? Many Christians today, perhaps most, at least in America, certainly most in America, would respond in outrage to either variety of these positions because when it comes to salvation, they know one thing for sure. It's like the only doctrine that some people know. Jesus died for me and once saved, what? Always saved, or the doctrine of eternal security. And when a person is saved, they cannot lose their salvation. This is true. And if you were to ask me, Peter, do you believe in once saved, always saved? Or do you believe in the doctrine of eternal security? I would say yes and no. Allow me to give an illustration. Marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. So that's wrong, wrong note. But what is Marriage. Imagine someone giving the answer, you ask, what is marriage? They would say marriage is um, two people live together and sleep together. And they give that definition and then they, they ask me if I think marriage is good or bad. Well, on the one hand, I think marriage is excellent, which is good because my wife just walked back in. I think marriage is excellent. The Bible says marriage is honorable Above all, it goes on in Proverbs, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Marriage is excellent. On the other hand, if I'm answering according to the definition that marriage is two people living and sleeping together, my answer is different if that's the definition that we're talking about because that's not the proper understanding of marriage. And so what you mean by the term or terms when you ask me the question changes my answer. Marriage is a permanent covenant relationship between a man and a woman made before God for the purpose of displaying Jesus Christ's love and sacrifice for his church. And it displays the church's love and submission to Christ. There are commitments and obligations and benefits and warnings. And so while I do support marriage properly defined, I do not support marriage improperly defined. Yes and no. And the same goes with once saved, always saved. I'd say the same thing, and I'm answer, well, it depends on what you mean, when asked about eternal security. The properly defined, I believe it is biblical and therefore true, right? That's important, sola scriptura, right? It is biblical, therefore it's true, therefore I believe it. Um, but I'm confident that many people do not define it properly. And when they say once saved, always saved, they talk about eternal security, that they're, they're missing the point and they're not actually coming from scripture in their understanding of that doctrine. The question of eternal security connects to the question of assurance of salvation or certainty about that. Can a person be certain that they are saved, that they have been forgiven? 
Can we be assured or confident that we are justified or made right, declared right before God? Then I would say yes. Certainty or assurance of salvation is possible, which leads then to another question. How can I be sure that I'm saved? The common misunderstanding of eternal security. This is where the the no part would lean in, right? The common misunderstanding of eternal security is that a profession of faith guarantees a person forgiveness and eternal life. Okay, I'll I'll say it again. The, The common misunderstanding of eternal security, once saved, always saved, the common misunderstanding as it relates to that doctrine is the idea that a profession of faith guarantees a person forgiveness and eternal life. And let me say this, biblically speaking, that is absolutely false. A profession of faith does not guarantee you forgiveness or eternal life. I want to use a passage to try to help us understand aspects of this, which is Mark chapter 4. Uh, we're not going to spend a lot of, t- I'm going to read it, but we're not going to spend our time working through the whole passage, which you can turn and follow along with me if you'd like. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 20, which means I'm going to read quickly. And Jesus began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. The whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen. Behold, a sower went out to sow. Farmer, not stitches. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. Immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. When the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you all understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, or the gospel we could say. The sower sows the words, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. They have no root in themselves, but endure for a little while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Do you see what he's saying here? I mean, one, has no, one type has no response to the word heard 
at all. Satan comes, snatches that away. No response takes place. Three of the four, though, respond to the word. Respond with joy. Respond with acceptance. Respond with a profession of believing the message. But of those three who respond, only one of them was truly converted. Only one of them is saved. The one, the good ground who bore fruit. Stony ground, thorny ground. They made a profession and that's it. There's no guarantee of eternal life or forgiveness for them because it wasn't real. There are all sorts of reasons to have false assurance of salvation. Thinking you'll be saved because everybody gets saved, right? No. Thinking you'll be saved because you're better than someone else. Well, everybody, everybody always has somebody who's better than them, but even if you're better than everybody else, you need to be better than that. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Maybe you think you'll be saved because other family members are Christians. It's like, well, my dad's a pastor or my granddad was a pastor. I'm, 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 I marvel in West Virginia. Everybody's related to a pastor and a preacher here. Everybody. Blows my mind. But there are a lot of churches everywhere that you drive around, so I guess it makes sense. It's like, well, yeah, I, I, I went to church, grew up, granddaddy was a this or that. No, it's not sufficient. Thinking you'll be saved because you keep rules or do churchy stuff. Yeah, is there Easter I gave, I got baptized, listened to this preaching, did this thing. All these things are false reasons for certainty. Somebody can be confident and wrong. Westminster Larger Catechism, we read from that this morning, it helpfully teaches that assurance of salvation is not of the essence of saving faith. It means you can have it and not be assured of it. Right? So assurance is not automatic, is what they're saying. It's something that needs to be pursued. It doesn't come automatically. It doesn't come permanently. In the same question, it goes on to say, true believers may wait long before they obtain assurance. And after the enjoyment thereof, may have their assurance weakened and intermitted or interrupted or discontinued for a variety of reasons. Trials or temptations or stumbling into sin. Where, where assurance can wax and wane. I say that to encourage you. In the first century, in a number of the letters written throughout the New Testament, authors, Peter, James, John, Paul, wrote to people who had questions about the assurance of their salvation and wrote a variety of answers to do that. So questions that you may have, I think I can go more than may. Questions that you do have about the assurance of your salvation, you're not the first, you're not the only one. It's true in the first century. Then 1,500 years later, 300 plus years ago for us, during the Reformation, Christian pastors recognized that both they and the people in their churches still struggled with the same question. Am I really saved? How, how can I know for sure? How can I have confidence, full assurance of faith as the author of Hebrews talked about? wondering whether you are indeed saved. Struggling with assurance of your salvation is, in a sense, normal. Uh, but in America, I mean, heart disease is normal. 
Just because it's normal doesn't mean that it's necessary. doesn't mean that it has to be the normal state of things. Just because it's a struggle that a lot of people have doesn't mean that assurance is unavailable or it's impossible to have. Just because something's normal doesn't make it absolutely necessary. There's so many ways that we could approach this topic. I had one way, and I scrapped it. <laughs> I had a whole other way, and that was Thursday afternoon, which is, makes for a little bit of a discouraging weekend. I want to approach this idea, this, this topic, your assurance of salvation. Assurance of your salvation. I'm going to approach that by giving you three questions you can ask yourself when you struggle with certainty that you are a Christian. Three questions. Ask yourself first, is Christ a sufficient Savior? Ask, do I trust Christ completely? And then ask, is the Holy Spirit's ongoing work in me evident? Those are the three questions. We'll go through them one at a time. First, is Christ a sufficient Savior? When you struggle with this most important question of your salvation, because, I mean, how are you going to move forward if you don't know what your relationship with God is? When you struggle with this most important question of your salvation, you must start by looking to Christ. That has to be the first step of that, looking to Christ. What does the Bible say about Jesus? It says he's truly God and truly human. Two 100% the God-man. John 1, 14, the word who created all things was with God, was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, John said. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. No one has seen God, but the word made him known. Jesus is truly God, truly human. Colossians chapter one, Paul wrote about this. In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. When you are wondering about your salvation, you start by looking to Jesus and you say, what does the Bible say? He is truly God and truly human. Scriptures go on. Promises made, promises fulfilled, promises talked about throughout the New Testament that Jesus died as a substitute. He died as a sacrifice for your sins and he rose again from the dead. You're struggling with your salvation, you go back to what Scripture says about Christ. He died to take punishment for sins that he did not commit. Made sin for us, Paul said. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, this is the gospel. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Am I am a believer? Start with the gospel. What is true about it? The God-man lived and died and rose in my place. Scripture's clear. Goes on uh, to our response. By faith in him, we are justified. We are forgiven. Otherwise known as we are saved. 
by faith, Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, Easy Bible verse to remember. Make sure you go on to verse 24. And are justified, made right before God, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a a sacrifice to cover us, to cover our sins, a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So righteousness, this propitiation, this covering of your sin, this forgiveness comes through faith in what Jesus accomplished on earth the cross by faith in Jesus the god man who lived died and rose for us and for our salvation through faith in him we are justified and forgiven it's what the scripture says so many different places and then it goes on the gospel revealed in scripture says also that those who trust in him are kept by him those who trust in him are kept by him John 10, I wasn't sure if we would get to that in our reading today. We just started in that, so we'll hear about this in a few weeks. And in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30, this is a classic assurance passage, and for good reason. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of, my, out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. How, how safe is my daughter, any of them, uh, when we're crossing the street and I'm holding her hand, right? Uh, as safe as I am strong. Um, not as strong as I want to be or should be, but every ounce of me is keeping her safe, you know? Lots of cars, it becomes death grip so that I could pick her up and move her away from the car if I need to, right? We are kept in the hand of our Father and our Savior. So how, how much are we kept? We are kept as much as the strength of our Father would allow. And how strong is that? Those who trust in him are kept by him. Another wonderful passage to go to would be Romans chapter 8. We sang through elements of this today as well. Romans chapter 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. I hope your coffee mugs have more than just that verse. For those whom he foreknew. How, how do I know that everything's going to work together for good? How do I know that this is going to work for my salvation? Paul explains those whom God foreknew. Foreknowing, we talked about this several weeks ago. is not just like, oh, I don't know. I don't know who that is out there. That's like, oh, that's Brett Short out there. He's mine. Right? God, God looking and choosing. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. These that I have chosen, this is what I'm going to do with them. In order that the son, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also Glorified. This is called an unbroken chain of redemption, which means that those that God in eternity past said, that one's mine, every single one of those will be glorified because God who chose them 
who foreknew them, predestined them, called them, will justify them, will glorify them. Right? God accomplishes these things. Another passage that we sang about, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, Peter writes that it is by God's power, 1 Peter 1, 5, if I didn't say that, by God's power. Whose power? God's power. We are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. By your power? By the saint's power? By God's power kept through faith for a salvation that we're, we're waiting to see the fruition of. The truth and promises of the gospel found in the Bible are the foundation for all true assurance of salvation. All true assurance. Assurance apart from knowledge of the gospel is false. If you are certain of your salvation, and that's not based out of the truth of scripture, then your assurance is false. An assurance of salvation without knowing the gospel is impossible. You'd be, be a believer, just kind of, I, I, I just, I'm just not sure who is who's Christ, what did he do, what, what are the promises, these type of things, right? You can't have assurance without knowing these promises. And if you have assurance without them, that's false. But assurance that is lacking could be lacking because you don't know the gospel, and you need to return to that. So when you would doubt, if you are saved, when your assurance wavers, you look at the foundation, you return to the gospel. Who is Jesus? What did he do? How do I, how do I get that? And what happens when I have trusted that? Right? Return to the gospel. Step one, is Christ a sufficient Savior, according to scripture? That's the first question to ask yourself. And then the answer, in case you were wondering, wasn't clear. The answer is yes. <laughs> scripture is clear. Christ is a sufficient Savior. The second question that we would then ask is, do I trust Christ completely? Do I trust Christ completely? This question makes the question of salvation and assurance very personal, for we must have a personal response to the gospel or we aren't saved. And notice that the question is not, did I trust completely? Did I trust in Christ and do I trust in Christ are different, right? Did happened when? It happened in the past. Do is now. Not did I trust Christ. Do I trust Christ completely? To say, to ask, am I saved? Well, did I trust Christ? Could treat faith as if it was a one-time event in the past rather than the ongoing life response of every Christian to Christ. Oh yeah, I believed and then I moved on. That's not what scripture says happens, right? Faith continues until faith becomes sight and your faith hasn't become sight because Jesus isn't here visibly right now. He's here, he's not here visibly. So it's not a did, not, well, yeah, I, I believed and then I started doing something else. The importance of faith, the outset and the ongoing nature of our faith cannot be, of, of our, yeah, of our faith. That's why it's called faith. 
cannot be overstated, considering the following passages to be reminded of the importance of a personal response of trust in Christ. Acts 16, 30, and 31, right? Paul's in jail, uh, earthquake, chains are open. The guard's like, well, they're gonna kill me in the morning, so I'm gonna kill myself now, save them the trouble. And Paul and Silas, they're still there. They don't harm yourself. And somehow this man had heard the gospel. Maybe he heard the gospel before Paul was arrested. Maybe he heard them singing about the gospel when they were in jail. But for whatever we means, they, he knew what they had been preaching. So he, he brings them out to him and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul answers, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Romans 10, Paul expands on this, says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you trust Christ completely? Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? You confess with your mouth. Yes, Jesus is Lord. All those things that he said, the gospel is true, right? He is, he is king. He is God. Yes, I believe that that is true. Confess that with your mouth. Believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. And I love how Paul talks about faith, right? You could think like, oh, sure. Well, yeah, but the Philippian jailer was being saved. So he could have been like, did I trust, right? And Paul seems to be talking about someone's introduction to Christianity to be saved. So I thought you said it was this present tense thing. Those passages don't make that case for you. It's like, well, Paul makes that case for me in Philippians. Philippians chapter three, where he's giving his resume for how wonderful of a self-righteous person he was, how he was better than all of you and me. And Paul was, he was better than us, better than everybody. And he said, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on Faith. That I may know him. I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to share in his sufferings. I want to become like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain from the resurrection of the dead. And so it's like, I'm constantly shifting all of my righteousness over to the side. I want it, I want it out of my way because I want the righteousness from God, the righteousness of Christ that you only get by faith. So I believe, Paul is saying. Do I trust Christ completely? Allow me to clarify what I mean by that. I mean, do you recognize and admit and hold to the truth of the gospel revealed in God's word? Are the things I mentioned earlier about Christ, truly God, truly human, lived, died, rose? Are those things just like blank facts? Like, yep, two plus two is four, Jesus rose from the dead. Declaration of Independence signed on July 4th, 1776. Anything else you wanna know? Like, is that, is that all it is? It's gonna, yeah, 
It happened, whatever. Or, or is the significance. That, that's, I, I, can't, I don't think I could find a better word. Like the importance, of, I love that, the significance of it. The personal, eternal significance of who Jesus is and what he did. Is that significance imprinted on your soul? Like take any other fact away, but who is Jesus and what did he do? Does, is that just, is that in you? Are these truths, are they, are they, do they the truths or are they your truths? Not exclusive to you, but, but are they yours? And have you given up all hope of saving yourself by your good works? Like, you know, I think I can pull it off. Right, well, then you don't trust Christ completely. And I'm like, boy, if it was on me, I'm in a heap of trouble. Good, yep, spot, spot on. You're, you're, you're moving toward assurance. Are you confident that your works are not only not good enough, but also just totally unnecessary for your justification? Because Christ is enough. It's like, hey, look, look at how good you are, man. Let's just push. I want to push that to the side. That's, that's garbage that could keep me from Jesus. Like Paul said, I just, I want empty hands so that I have Christ by faith. One of the most significant statements of Christian truth outside the Bible to me personally is the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Not the first time that I've referenced this. That question asks, and this is a question really of, of assurance enjoyed now, of, of the Christian life and what's possible by the gospel. The question is this, what is your only comfort in life and death right now and the fact that you could die today? What, do you find comfort or do you find terror? How do, how do you feel? How, comfort is possible. How, what is your only comfort in life and death? The answer that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He, he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Christ is our comfort in life and at the thought of death is what he did on the cross, right? That's, that's, that's ownership, that's possession, that, that's, that's, that gospel's mine. Of course, it's also, there's enough for you too. Like, it's not like mine, you can't have it. It's like mine and you can have it too. Like it's more of a heap, I guess, than just like a little bit. You know, many of us are familiar with uh, still asking, okay, how do I know, like trusting in Christ completely? I'm trying to just come at this from different angles. Many of us are familiar with the evangelism explosion curriculum. Anybody gone through that? 
before, helpful to using questions uh, to ask people to help them to think about eternal things. And one of the first questions, I think it might be number two, if you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Well, as you consider whether or not you trust Christ completely, you can ask yourself that question. And I'm gonna give you the answer. Because there is a right answer. And the right answer really shouldn't start with the word I. Really, the answer is because of Jesus. I mean, if you, if you want to be technical, why should I let you into heaven? The answer would be like, you shouldn't. But Jesus. Only sufficient answer. See, that's that trusting in Christ. When you think about that, okay, so I'm evaluating my entire life before God, and then we start to think, did I, or how much sin, how much righteousness? No, you just push that all to the side and you go right to Jesus is enough, right? That's the, that's the heartbeat of trusting in him completely. Is that your heart's cry? Do you trust Christ completely? And there's a difference between truth that's out there and there's tr- truth that's in here. A difference between an awareness of the gospel and an embracing of the gospel. So which is your response? Awareness or embracing? If you have certainty of your salvation apart from trusting in Christ, your assurance is false. I mentioned a few weeks ago, don't trust in your trust. Don't believe in believing. That's so common. You, you aren't saved by your profession of faith. You are not saved by an altar call or by praying a prayer. No one has ever been saved by praying a prayer or anything else, right? Saved by Christ, received by faith, expressed in a prayer. Sure, that's fine, but there is a difference and you need to have that clear. Did I mean it when I prayed is a terrible question. I hate that question. I suffered under that question. It, it's, it's looking to yourself. Stop looking to you and look to Jesus. You shouldn't look back to a moment in your life for assurance. You, you must look much further back, at least you know, closing in on 2,000 years back to the cross and the empty tomb. That's the source of assurance, not something that happened in your life. When your assurance wavers, when it happens, consider Christ. Do you trust him to save you? And remember that one with weak faith in a strong object is safe regardless of their lack of confidence, right? It's not saved by the strength of your faith. Weak faith in a strong object, safety. Strong faith in a weak object, danger, right? Two illustrations of this, I've used one before, a timid ice skater fearfully inching forward over three feet of ice is not going to fall through. But the bold ice skater confidently gliding and jumping across one inch of ice is very likely to get very wet and very cold. Well, look how confident he is, right? It's misplaced confidence. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith 
that saves you. I also heard someone give an example of this from Scripture. We've been reading through Exodus in our gatherings. So imagine an Israelite father who's seen all the plagues and all the devastation that happened in Egypt. He hears Moses' instructions to apply the blood of the lamb on his doorposts. And he doesn't understand how that will work. But he follows the instructions that he was given. And then he hurries inside. He holds his son as close to him as possible, fearful throughout the night that his son is going to die. And then down the street, there's another Israelite father who confidently and joyfully slaughters the Passover lamb and, and whistles a little tune as he paints the blood on his door. He then sighs with relief and he heads back inside to enjoy another euro. Peter Brett unleavened him. Let me ask you this. Whose son is in danger when the angel passes by? Two fathers, one nervous, one confident. Whose son is in danger? Neither. Because the blood is on the door. Trusted in the promises of God. If your faith, however weak and wobbly it may be, if your faith is in Christ, you can be certain that you are saved. And then the final question is, is the Holy Spirit's ongoing work in me evident? Is Christ a sufficient Savior? Do I trust him completely? And is the Holy Spirit's ongoing work in me evident? This brings us back to the parable of the soils. Is there fruit in your life or have you been withered by trials or strangled and choked by distractions? I've heard the word. I know all of you. I know you've heard the word. At least I've preached the word at you and others have too. Is your ground stony? Is it full of thorns or is fruit being produced by the Holy Spirit. Well, what kind of fruit reveals the Holy Spirit's work in us? Well, first, Keith mentioned this two weeks ago, Keith Pickard, right? What, what is our life supposed to look like? A life that glorifies God is a life of ongoing faith and repentance. Not just I believed or I repented, but I believe, I repent, constantly trying to, working to turn from sin toward righteousness into a life that is, that is honoring and reflecting of who God is. We could consider Galatians 5 where Paul outlines what it looks like to live a life that is enslaved to the flesh and the fact that the flesh and the Holy Spirit are battling inside of us. I almost put them together. Battling inside of us. Putting us into this turmoil, but we have the Spirit not under the law. We're not going to be defined by sexual immorality or impurity or sensuality or idolatry or sorcery or enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. Things like these that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That cannot be the definition of a believer's life because. The Spirit is at work. And if the Spirit is at work, the fruit of that, that which becomes externally evident, is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Peter writes about this as well in 2 Peter 1. It's a lengthy 
passage, maybe take some time to look at that today, but it's this, this list of increasing vir- excuse me, virtues that if you have become a partaker of the divine nature, if Christ is in you by his spirit, there will be faith, virtue, knowledge of God, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. These qualities are yours and are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what are some other evidences of the Holy Spirit's ongoing work in the life of a believer? We go through the New Testament in a lot of ways. You know, it starts off with, with a love for God. You love God, you hate God, you're just indifferent toward God. The love God has shed toward us in our hearts, the Spirit responds with love back toward God as our Father. Not do you love God perfectly. If it was, you can have assurance if you love God perfectly, and I would say, do you love God perfectly? And you would say, yes, I love God perfectly. I would say, you are delusional. No, you don't. You don't love God perfectly. But do you love him at all? <laughs> right? Is there gratitude for what he's done and amazement and worship? Look at his care for me. Do you have love for other believers? What are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And that carries right over into what Christ says. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciple. You can know it too if you have love for one another. Do good to all, especially those of the household of faith. So many different times in the Gospel of John and in his writings, he mentions his love for other believers. Do you, do you have a hatred for sin? And ask if you commit sin. You do commit sin. But as you do, you're just like, yep, it's who I am. I'm good with that. It's not the fruit of the Spirit. But like angry again, complaining again, impatient again, lusting again, lying again. Ah, uh, oh, I hate this. Why did I do? I I want to honor God. I thought about this situation. I I knew what was right. Like yes, I want to do this. I want to honor the Lord. And you step up, and then you're like, and I did it again. Like what? Oh, I despise that. I regret that. I de- I desire to change. I, I have a sorrow. My heart is broken over the fact that I just continue to sin in these type of ways. Oh, God, help me. Deliver me from this body of death. That's the sign of the Spirit. You, you wouldn't care about sin against God if it were not God at work in you. You failing and hating the fact that you fail God yet again, I submit, is a sign of life in you. Because someone who doesn't care about Christ or the gospel or God would just live in sin. But the battle is a, is a means of assurance. The discouraging battle that you have against sin, the fact that it is a battle and not just resigned to it, I think is the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in you. You have discipline from God to test and train you. Everything just goes perfectly ever any difficulty, it's not a good sign. The different things that, that, that draw out 
your sinfulness and need for holiness and other things, right? The disciplining hand of God. Hebrews says if you aren't experiencing that, it's because you're not his son. You're not his daughter. Trials in your life stretch and pull and discourage are signs that God's at work in you because there's work to be done and he's doing it. Don't despise the chastening, training, disciplining hand of the Lord. That's not an easy command to obey. Do you have a yearning for holiness? Is there, is there progress in godliness over time? This is something that we really need together. Progress in godliness, we can't see it in ourselves a lot of times. One of the reasons why we need God's people together. Like, you know, you used to act this way, and I've seen a change. I see God working in you, right? We need each other for that. Do you have that type of yearning to be more like Christ's evidence of, of God, growth in godliness? Is there gifting by the Holy Spirit for service to Christ and others in the church, right? That's a promise from God that that will happen for his people. So do you do that? Why? Because of God, the Holy Spirit, who is at work in you? Do you have a longing for heaven and a dissatisfaction with the here and now? Affections set on things above and not on things of the earth. And here's the wonderful promise of God that, that undergirds this point. It's Philippians 1, 6. We already read it together this morning. Paul says, I am sure of this, that, that he, God who began a good work in you, that he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So the evidence of the Holy Spirit's ongoing work in you is promised by God. That's why we can look at that and then see and draw assurance from that, confident that God will be doing those things. God preserves his people so his people persevere. God keeps us so we continue to believe. And God has ordained both the end or the goal of our perseverance or continuing. He's ordained both the end, this is what will happen for my people. He also has ordained the means of our perseverance. How is it that they will persevere? It's not through inactivity. It's not through laziness. It's not through just sitting back and being like, all right, God, stop me from sinning if you want me to. Make me righteous if you want me to be. I'm just gonna sit here and do my own thing. All right, God has ordained for us to persevere by use of the means that he has provided. I, I read a story, it, it's obviously not true because it ends up talking about heaven. And nobody who's been to heaven wrote about it. Paul went to heaven and he's like, I'm not gonna write about it. So nobody else would do that either, right? Anyway, there's a woman uh, who's in danger of floodwaters coming to destroy her house, take her life. So she goes up onto the roof and she begins to desperately pray for God to deliver her. And so uh, basically a, a raft of wood floats by on the water. She doesn't do anything with the raft. She just continues to pray, oh God, deliver me from these floodwaters. Then, then some, some of her neighbors actually come by in a boat. They're like, hey, hop in. It's like, no, no, no. I'm trusting for God to save me. Like, you're gonna drown. Just, just get in the boat. No, I'm praying, trusting God to save me. So, like, all right, they leave. And then a helicopter, National Guard, they come by, drop down the ladder. The guys like, hey, come with us. No, no, no. I'm praying, I'm waiting for God to save me. And then she drowns. She goes to heaven, like, I prayed. I asked you to 
help me. Why didn't you help me? God's answer, what do you think the raft and the boat and the helicopter were? Right? <laughs> Make use of the means that God has provided for the end that we are seeking. I think that this, maybe this is, this is helpful to me. Maybe it's helpful to you. We, we pray, give us this day our daily bread, right? And then what do we do? Now we're off, many of us aren't farmers, so we just go to Aldi. But if you were a farmer, give us this day our daily bread. Then you get up off your knees, go out of your closet, and you go out and you till, and then you sow, and then you water, and then you wait, and you weed, and you harvest, and then you grind, and you knead, and you bake, and you eat. Well, did God give you your daily bread? Yes, because all of those things you do with trusting God to provide and, and grateful, none of it could have happened. No success in you having your daily bread if God hadn't been involved in all of those processes. So it's not, do I trust him or do I make use of the means that he's provided? No, you, you trust him by making use of the means that he has provided. And it's the same way with assurance of our salvation. Make use of the means. Man, I have a whole other point. I'll just, if you have assurance without any ongoing faith in Christ, without any repentance from sin, without any growth in godliness or Christ-likeness, then your assurance is false and you are lost. If you have assurance, I know I'm going to heaven, that I don't trust in Christ, don't care about my sin, there's no fruit of any type in my life is misplaced assurance. You are boldly proceeding on an inch of ice and your soul is at stake. And if that is the case, you know, the, the conclusion is to, the solution. Come to Christ. If you haven't trusted him, then trust him now. Right? If you haven't believed, believe. Receive this gift of forgiveness. And if you lack Assurance because your faith is weak or your sinful flesh is strong. Don't despair of imperfections or stumblings. Both of those we find throughout Scripture by, by teaching and by example. And I would say, again, those are signs of, of life. The struggle, the battle is, is a sign that, that the Holy Spirit is working in you, not the fact that he's not. And if you lack assurance, when you lack assurance, make use of, or if you don't lack assurance, just make use of the means that God has provided for your spiritual life to be sustained. These are, these are profound, deep points, very unique. I came up with them all on my own. No one's ever said them before, so you better write them down. There are three. One, read your Bible. Two, pray to your loving Heavenly Father. And three, gather faithfully with God's people for worship. Pray. Read your Bible, gather with God's people for worship. Here's the thing. You know, my own Christian life, like this week, last week, next week, I experienced so many ups and downs. And I am most tempted to neglect God's means of grace for my perseverance when I am at my lowest, when I'm plunging, or when I'm at my highest. 
Like, oh, I feel really good right now. I think I've got this day on my own. Or, no way I'm a believer. Plunging deeply into despair. No point in reading my Bible. No point in in praying. Probably shouldn't even go back to the gathering. I should quit as a pastor. I'm just such a failure, fake fraud. Or be like, man, I am on top of the world. I don't need, I, I, I know enough of the Bible. I don't need to pray today. Man, I don't need any other brothers and sisters. I'm just doing so great. You know, it's interesting. That part is when I start to go back down again. And you know, the other amazing reality is that when I'm free falling, in weakness and despair, and I go to God in his word, that's when it starts to turn back up. But at those two points, your lowest and your highest is when you feel the most tempted to neglect those things. God wouldn't, won't have me, or I really don't need him. So we neglect the means of grace that he's provided. When you're at your lowest, it's when you need God's grace the most, right? And then when you're at your highest, you need it to keep you from stumbling the most. So when you struggle and when you, when you sin, when you start to drift, return to God's means of grace and perseverance in order to enjoy assurance that Christ is your savior and God is at work in your life. Is Christ sufficient? Go ahead and just answer. Is Christ sufficient? Yes, do you completely trust him? I hope the answer is yes. And is the Holy Spirit's ongoing work of grace evident in your life? We need to come back and consider these things frequently together. The means of assurance that God's provided to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you that, that you are certainly at work in those that you have called to yourself. It is not on us we persevere because you are preserving us. Um, and we not merely trust professions, may we not trust our works, but may we see, understand, and give, give um, grateful worship to you um, for the work that you have begun and are continuing and will bring to completion. Amen.